ladies and gentlemen. My name is Lloyd Long. I'm Jennifer Long's father. We took care of today what we needed to take care of. It's been a long time coming. This is William Long. He's with a small group of reporters inside a training building just off the grounds of the Federal Correctional Complex in Terre Haute, Indiana. Also, just a heads up, this story includes graphic descriptions of violence. He needed to take his last breath. He took my daughter's last breath. He is Wesley Perky. Moments ago, the federal government finally killed him with a massive overdose of a drug called pentobarbital. But it was a fight. Federal courts stayed the execution due to concerns that Perky, an Alzheimer's patient, was mentally incompetent. He was the first of at least two people the Trump administration killed, despite evidence they suffered from severe mental illness. There's some resolve. There is no, uh, there is no closure. There never will be because I won't get my daughter back. My colleague Adam Pinsker was covering the execution restart that week. Perky was the second to go. Adam watched all three. How over this, these past years have you coped with him still being on death row and, and nothing happening and then all these delays going on and how have you dealt with that? And there's way too many delays, too many putting in for appeals. I've been waiting 17 years for something that even though it was, there was a moratorium on, on death row, there's monsters out there that need to be getting rid of. They need to be put down like the dogs they are. That day, Long joined a tiny club, the handful of people who have witnessed a federal execution. Perky was only the second person to be executed since 2003. The prison bureau handles transportation, lodging, even meals for the friends and loved ones of crime victims who choose to witness an execution. And it arranges meetings such as this one with media. It offers no such services to the families of those being executed. They're not even allowed inside this building. Anyway, during that post-execution meeting with reporters, Long also noted how Perky's death appeared peaceful, at least uneventful. I need to go into it. He went to sleep. He didn't feel anything. He went to sleep. He didn't feel anything. Witnesses often use these words. That's what they say it looks like, on the outside. But inside, at least this time, the forced overdose of a drug called pentobarbital wreaked havoc on Perky's organs. Blood rushed into his lungs, collapsing them and potentially causing excruciating pain, something akin to waterboarding if he was conscious. We know all this not because it was apparent to the witnesses. From their perspective, Perky more or less passed out or drifted off shortly after the whole thing began. But medical files we received, including a report of an autopsy, documented clear signs of pulmonary edema. A second record, an autopsy of a different person killed during the Trump executions, showed the same thing. The two autopsies are the only ones known to have been conducted after the killings in Terre Haute. We have new evidence today of the pain of lethal injection. This is a process the federal government plans to use to execute two inmates at a prison in Terre Haute, Indiana this week. Lethal injection is supposed to be a quick and painless death. And hundreds of other records, collected by NPR from state executions, also showed evidence of pulmonary edema in the majority of cases. We've obtained the largest collection of these autopsies ever assembled in the U.S. This collection spans decades of executions across multiple states. Records are now part of a growing stack of evidence that lethal injection isn't necessarily a kinder, gentler way of killing. And it explains why more and more condemned prisoners are seeking alternatives to lethal injection. From WFIU Public Radio in Indiana, I'm George Hale, and this is Rush to Kill, a podcast about the secretive Midwest facility where all federal executions take place. A majority of Americans support capital punishment. According to polls, death penalty supporters also prefer lethal injection over methods like hanging or gas. Lethal injection is thought to be painless and thought to be quick, seemingly the most humane choice. But what if we've got it all wrong? I, I had no uh, ambition to have anything to say about the death penalty and capital punishment. Joel Zivit thinks we've got it all wrong. He's an anesthesiologist and ICU doctor at Emory University Hospital in Atlanta. 
He's also an associate professor of anesthesiology and surgery. Around 10 years ago, this weird thing happened with the medication that he was prescribing pretty often. Sodium thiopental was used by every anesthesiologist everywhere in the world. Until one day, all of a sudden, just vanished. And the drug disappeared from the world market. It was not available anywhere, which that was very puzzling to me because I thought, where did it go? How could it have been? How could it have gone? Did we forget how to make it? So he started investigating and learned that there was only one manufacturer, an American company called Hospira. It's now owned by Pfizer. And Hospira was approached and said, can you guarantee that your sodium thiopental that you're making will not be used in capital punishment? The drug had been manufactured in North Carolina, but the company was moving production to Italy. Eventually, Zivit found the answer, and it was all about the death penalty. And they said, no, we can't guarantee that, and they stopped making it. The move to an EU country came with restrictions. The European Union banned the death penalty in 2008 and called for its abolition worldwide. The EU also requires member states to monitor the export of drugs to ensure they aren't being used for executions abroad. Zivit typed up an op-ed about the ordeal. Registering my distress by this, and after that, I guess my phone started ringing. The callers were capital defense attorneys, asking Zivit to look into the drugs or combinations of drugs being used by some U.S. states to kill their clients, typically in the pursuit of challenging execution plans on Eighth Amendment grounds, the U.S. Constitution's prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. There's no single version of lethal injection. Many states use similar methods. They spell them out in detailed guides they refer to as protocols. But if you use words like these around Zivit, it can sometimes derail the conversation. Let's be clear that the whole thing about lethal injection is it is designed, and this is not by accident, but on purpose, to mimic a medical procedure, a medical act. And so even the kinds of language that's used here, like protocol or procedure, those are terms that I has a meaning to me as a practicing physician, and, but these are not, these don't have the same sort of meaning. Whatever you want to call it, a how-to guide for an execution spells out details including the type or types of drugs and the order they're administered. Until recently, most states use a three-drug combination. They start with an anesthetic, which was Zivit's missing drug, before moving on to a paralytic. Then potassium chloride, which stops the heart and causes death. But starting around 2009, some of these drugs were becoming unavailable. And these are drugs, but in the state's hand, the same kind of chemical is being used now as a poison. The state is not injecting drugs. The state is injecting chemicals that are now being, tried to be reimagined as poison. Which is why today, states with the death penalty are often shaking up their plans. And, and it's not that the death penalty with lethal injection is evolving because of some sort of thoughtful evolution of how it is that the death is actually occurring and whether it's constitutional. It's simply what they're able to get their hands on. And that rush led authorities back to an older drug called pentobarbital. So pentobarbital is a class of drugs referred to as barbiturates. A barbiturate is an old drug, and it used to be used in a, for it, it For a while, it was used in a pill form, and it could be used as a sleeping pill. It's had a bit of a resurgence starting in 2020. Hospitals used it to induce sedation for COVID-19 patients on ventilators. It works on many systems in the body, not just the brain, but it also works on the heart. And so it can have a direct effect on kind of the strength of the heart contraction. And it, it's known to, in overdose, to, to cause death. And I presume that the reason why it was selected was because it's one drug, one chemical that when given in a large enough quantity, can kill a person. This is how it became used in that way. Today, more than a dozen states and the federal government use pentobarbital alone in executions. It's easier to find one drug instead of three, and like with the COVID-19 patients, pentobarbital appears to calm the person taking it. Then it was as if that they were falling off to sleep, and in that sleep state, they then just peacefully died or something akin to that. that. And that was, I think, the belief for a long time. All that to say, Zivit had a busy few years looking into the evidence for and against pentobarbital. A couple of years ago, defense attorneys from Georgia asked him to review a handful of autopsies of people executed by lethal injection. It was while doing that research he made a sort of game-changing discovery. This finding that I discovered was really serendipitous. 
I was not looking for what I found. It wasn't even the parts of the autopsies the attorneys wanted him to check. What I was actually looking for when I reviewed autopsies was the blood level of pentobarbital that could be detected and whether that had something to do with how people died. But what instead I found was that most people who had pentobarbital developed something called pulmonary edema. Pulmonary edema. It's a condition in which fluid accumulates rapidly in the lungs, a potentially excruciating sensation often compared to waterboarding. That occurs after the pentobarbital is injected. And so the lungs are filling with fluid. And so instead of falling off to sleep and dying, people are actually drowning, in a sense, in their own bloody secretions. And they're being asphyxiated. They're choking to death on their own saliva and blood. And that's how they die. In 1982, the very first execution using any lethal injection method in the United States took place in, where else, Texas. Each year at its sprawling cemetery, staff from the legendary Huntsville prison bury dozens of deceased incarcerated people whose bodies go unclaimed. It's reminiscent of Arlington National Cemetery in Washington, D.C., with hundreds of white crosses and tombstones lined up beyond sight. The cemetery is named for Joe Bird, a prison guard who operated the state's electric chair. Engraved with the letter X for execution, otherwise identical crosses and tombstones forever mark those who were killed with any method by the state of Texas inside the so-called Walls Unit in downtown Huntsville. Hey there. Hey. Good, how are you? Of course. Yeah, happy to help. Texas electrocuted to death 361 people before officially adopting lethal injection as the primary execution method in 1977. There was a sense in the 70s that the electric chair had too many possibilities for problems, for errors, for and for like scandals that would embarrass the state or the prison system. Maurice Chuma covers the prison system for the Marshall Project. He's also the author of Let the Lord Sort Them, a history of the death penalty. I have a recording from the Texas legislature where they passed a bill in 1977 to make lethal injection the method. And they, the guy said that the electric chair had a tendency to, quote, become a circus sideshow. Texas carried out an execution using that three-drug process. Once Texas, quote-unquote, mastered the process of lethal injection, other states copied Texas because it was like, oh, they seem to be doing it with a minimum of scandal and problems. So, like many other states would send prison officials to Texas to watch executions and study how they did it. And in 2001, in the weeks before Timothy McVeigh's execution at the Federal Correctional Complex in Indiana, a group of executioners went down to Huntsville for in-person lessons. But the state's influence over national death penalty policy goes beyond training. And that advising wasn't just lethal injection, it was a whole execution and even logistics of how you have a room for the victim family members and a separate room for the you know, executed person's family and the microphone hanging down and the separate room with the phones that connect to the governor or the president. Texas is responsible for about a third of the country's total executions. Harris County alone sends more people to death row than any U.S. state aside from Texas. And the state continues to execute people right downtown in the red brick walls unit. Other reminders of the state's status as the execution capital are everywhere. A restaurant down the street from Walls offers a Warden Burger, Killer Burger, Old Sparky, and Great Escape. And the actual retired electric chair is on display at the center of the Texas Prison Museum, which pays tribute to the once-thriving prison rodeo. At the museum gift store, visitors can shop for jewelry and leather goods made by people currently awaiting execution. Your name is Jim, right? What's the last name? Jim Willett. That's where I met Jim Willett, former Walls Unit warden. They were getting ready to do the B.I. that bombed Oklahoma. Willett served as warden from 1998 to 2001. I'd never seen an execution when I had to oversee the first one that I did. And then they moved me over to the Walls to, to be the warden there, and I oversaw the executions. But when I did the first one, I had never witnessed an execution prior to that. My first one was, I was very anxious, but, and I was my whole mindset was thinking, okay, this happens now, and then what, what happens next? And here in Texas, we were doing them so often, and it became routine pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. 
Willett says he tried to make the process as comfortable as possible for all involved. I don't like having to lay down flat with the, without a pillow. My, it hurts my neck. And after I was there for, I don't know, did a few of these, I had them get, the, get a pillow and put it on the gurney from then on. Mm -hmm. We also, while I was there, had a short guy, had a problem getting up on the gurney, so we built a, I had them built some steps where the shorter folks could get up there easier. The Federal Prison Bureau's procedures are conducted behind closed doors and in secret. They've denied, always on security grounds, every interview request we've ever made. But death penalty experts say many of the steps in the federal process appear to be copied and pasted from the tried-and-true systems in Texas. Finding a former warden in Huntsville is as close as we could get. So what, when is the first encounter? How does that work the first encounter I had would have been when he arrived at the unit. Mm -hmm. I went back there and talked with him. And then around 6 o'clock, shortly after that, I would go back to his cell and tell him it's time to come with me to the... I always said, it's time to come with me to the next room. Mm -hmm. And one of the officers there would unlock the door, and I'd tell the inmate to follow me, and then I'd turn and go into the execution chamber. I'd have the inmate behind me with the officers around him. Nobody ever held on to them, and the chaplain. And we'd get in there, and I'd tell the inmate, lie down on the gurney with your head up at that end. Of course, once the pillar got there, I didn't have to say that anymore. Uh, they would. The officers all knew their job. They strapped all those straps on quickly, and I would ask the inmate if any of them were uncomfortable. And there were a couple of times where a guy said, can you loosen this one? And we did. His description more or less tracks with the timing and procedures the U.S. Prison Bureau seemed to be following in summer 2020. I'd walk over to the door that goes into the executioner's room and open it, and the medical team would come out and start in, inserting the IVs in the arms one at a time, and I'd talk with the inmate if, if he wanted to talk. I might want to talk about how the guards treated him or how the chaplain, how that went that day or something. I think they're just trying to get through it all like the rest of us. A lot of that depended on the inmate. There, there was, I saw inmates from the point of being so at ease that I don't think I'm any more at ease right now talking to you than they were talking to me. They were just totally at ease. I saw the very other end of it, and I know we had one inmate that was so nervous, I thought, this guy's going to have a heart attack and die before we ever had this execution. I mean, he was a nervous wreck. Just shaking. He was just literally shaking. He was so scared. In Texas and in Terre Haute, the media witnesses aren't allowed to witness any of this, only the moments right before the drugs start flowing. I would always ask them if they were planning on making a last statement, and we'd set up some sort of a way for him to notify me that he was through with his statement. I said, I need to know that, however you want to do that, and I'll tell you now, if you go more than three or four minutes, I'm going to let you know it's time to wrap it up. And you'll need to do that or we're going to go ahead with it, with it anyway. Did you ever have to do that? One time. One time a guy just wouldn't shut up and I told him, I said, we're going ahead with the execution. And he just kept on talking. Crazy stuff. Do you think he was like mentally ill? Or no, he was a sorry guy. Sorriest inmate I dealt with maybe in the whole 30 years. Yeah, when I got there, the wardens before me, there were two of them that had done it before me and they both used their glasses. I, I used reading, I only wore reading glasses back then, but I'd put them on and take them off when it come time to give the signal. I did have a funny one happen one time when I was still doing the glasses. I forgot to put my glasses on. And the executioner, he had a big time with that because he knew when to do it. And he, and, but I actually had just totally forgot and I went and then, but he had a big time with me when, that, when it was over with and everybody got out of there laughing at me about forgetting to put my glasses on so I could take them off. Willett oversaw executions using the three-drug method, but after years of complex and arduous efforts to obtain all these drugs, Texas switched to a single one, pentobarbital. Former Attorney General Bill Barr's Justice Department did the same. From what I hear, that's a whole lot longer than when I was there. When I was there, when I gave the signal for the executioner to start putting the drugs in the body, within a minute, you'd see the guy take his last breath. You still may have a little that, but for all practical purposes, he was gone. I always waited three minutes because that's what the warden before me said he did. But those before I brought the doctor in to, to pronounce the guy dead, but he was 
in every case that I can think of, he was dead way before then. But they tell me now it's 15, 20, 25 minutes. I can't imagine having to stand there and wait that long. That's just ridiculous. These comparatively dragged out deaths are now routine in states that use pentobarbital. The federal executions in 2020 and 2021 were also longer on average. Texas has now executed about 300 people using the single drug method. Okay, here it goes. That's about the same number of executions Michelle Lyons witnessed as a criminal justice reporter for the local newspaper and then as a public information officer for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. The jobs had some overlap. Literally, I stopped being a reporter on a Friday and the next Monday reported for my job as PIO. They had decided they needed to take a different direction. The office had always been men and they were always basically middle-aged white men and so they decided that they needed a, a female preferably someone younger and preferably someone who spoke spanish as a public information officer for the state justice department one of lyon's roles was to assist journalists covering executions she also served as a resource for the person being executed helping them reach the public and the media or just helping them with practical matters connected with dying so it would be things like where their property is going to go, who the witnesses are that are coming to witness on their behalf. My role would be to see what their demeanor was and see were they nervous, were they pacing, were they talkative, did they have questions. And I would also let them know which reporters were coming. The warden at that time would let them know, tonight I'm going to come and you'll be given an opportunity to make a last statement. And he always made a joke about you're not going to be able to filibuster, but you'll be given a minute or two to speak. And that would be it. When it approached 6 p.m., the time that all Texas executions are carried out, Lyons would accompany the journalists into the execution chamber. It used to go really fast. So that method went very fast and faster than everything I've read about the one drug method. So the drugs were administered in a pretty rapid succession and were really administered within less than, gosh, a minute and a half, two minutes. But we would stand there and wait a certain amount of time just by protocol. And generally, that was about five minutes, which would always seem like the longest five minutes of everyone's lives. You just stood there when you would watch. And this inmate, usually, especially if they were more fair-skinned, would change colors. It was sometimes very disturbing, but you would sit. Lyons says she could deal with witnessing executions, even 300 executions. But catching a glimpse of the lead-up gave her the creeps. And so I watched the warden go through the door that I had always watched the officials go through. The warden walked through the door and go and get the inmate, which I didn't see that part. I could only hear it. But I heard him go down the hall of the holding cell and ask the inmate to come with him. And I've always heard, I always knew that of all those executions, they never fight so they walk unrestrained, which I'd, again, always heard. So of all those executions I'd witnessed, there were maybe, I know for sure two, and I think there was a third one I, that they fought. And the reason I know that is because, A, the officers told me afterwards, but B, you could tell when you went in to witness the execution because there were always five straps on the inmate. There were one on each arm, one on each leg. There were straps like on their torso that strapped them to the gurney. If the person fought, they also always had an ace bandage type of a gauze, like a bandage that was around their head. And the he that was to keep their head secured to the gurney because if they were fighting, usually they were thrashing their head against the gurney. And so to keep them from injuring their head, they would also ace bandage their head to the gurney. So that's how the minute you would walk in, if you saw that on their head, you knew they had fought. So again, they were never restrained. And um, when I was watching from that room, watching those men walk into the room with no restraints on, and then there was a little step stool, and I'd always seen the step stool sitting below the gurney when I would witness the executions, but I'd never seen it like actually pushed out. I watched the guy walk into the room and step up on the two little steps and then sit on the gurney like, it's, like you're at the doctor's office and then just lay back and throw his arms out and get ready for the IV lines to be established. I found it so completely contrary to what human nature would be. Most people have that fight or flight um, instinct 
when I think about myself and if you knew that you were about to die or somebody was about to take your life, you would think that you would be kicking and screaming and dragging your feet and biting and doing everything you can. But these people have become so resigned to the fact that they're about to die that there's none of that going on. And it just completely messed with my head. I found it so strange and just messed up that I couldn't get out of my head. So I hated it. So I did it those two times and never did it again. People can watch the same event and walk away with totally different interpretations. Lyons is convinced she watched 278 people essentially fall asleep forever. Whereas Emory anesthesiologist Joel Zivit is sure this isn't sedation. They're paralyzed, all while their lungs are filling up with blood. The peaceful demeanor is because we associate slowed movement and slurred speech as fatigue. But there's no reason to believe the executed people were even tired. And we can't ever ask them. But what does all this ambiguity tell us about the usefulness of non-medical personnel witnessing executions? Death penalty attorneys and legal scholars all insist the journalistic role is an essential one. It's crucial to have an impartial participant as a check on what both or either side might later claim. And that argument makes sense for something like a firing squad. Although it would presumably be far more traumatic, witnesses could describe with confidence whether or not the execution went according to plan. Did they have to shoot him again? But that's not possible for lethal injection, at least not without a lengthy study period about the signs we should be looking for. Isn't it at least possible that if reporters only report what we can see, someone appearing to fall asleep, for example, when so much more could be happening, that might serve to mislead our audiences about lethal injection? Is this why lethal injection remains so popular, even though its botch rate is higher than any other execution procedure in the U.S.? The Trump executions compounded the media witness problem, because due to the rarity of federal executions, no one in the regular pool of reporters had done this before, as opposed to reporters in Huntsville and people like Michelle Lyons. I want to know why you guys are working on Sunday. Austin Serrett is a professor of jurisprudence and political science at Amherst College in Massachusetts. All right, I won't report you to the union. How can I help you? Serrett's research focuses on execution methods and lethal injection. I wanted to know what exactly defines a botched execution. A botched execution is an execution which departs from the requirements of the legal protocol governing executions in any particular state, or what departs, something that departs from what I would call standard operating procedure. So there are certain expectations that govern every method of execution. Those expectations are typically defined by the proponents. So one way to judge whether an execution is botched is to say, what did the proponent say this kind of execution would do and how it would operate? That's what I call standard operating procedure. Sarah says the ever-shifting manners and methods used by U.S. states and the federal government are unique to this country. So most other countries that have had the death penalty chose a method of execution and stuck with it. The story of the United States is quite different. Firing squad, electric chair, gas chamber, lethal injection. We've tried it all. The United States is trying to achieve two things. It wants, the country has wanted to keep on executing people. At the same time, we've wanted to believe that the way we execute people is safe, reliable, and humane. Or to put it differently, that we can have a death penalty that is not cruel and therefore violative of the Eighth Amendment. He avoids speculating about what method might be less risky. Why talk about hypotheticals? Why not talk about the experience that we have had with every execution technology that we've used? Hangings. People were beheaded. People were strangled at the end of a rope. Gas chamber. People gagged for gasp for breath for much longer periods of time than the proponents said they would. The electric chair, people catch on fire. Lethal injection takes hours. Let's talk about those things. Not about some imagined possibility that we'd, we'd find something that would that would be guaranteed to work. If it seems like you've been hearing more and more about executions going wrong, it's because they are. More than 7% of every lethal injection between 19, 
77 when it was first adopted and 2010 were botched. And the error rate since 2010 is higher than it was before as states have experimented with new drugs and new drug combinations. Lethal injection used to mean the same thing. Between 1977 and 2010, every lethal injection in the United States was carried out in this, using the same drugs. Since 2010, the lethal injection protocol, the meaning of lethal injection has decomposed. Now, if I say lethal injection, it might mean a one drug overdose of pentobarbital in one state. It might mean a two drug combination in another state. It might mean a three drug combination in a third state. Those are the facts of lethal injection. That's the real world of lethal injection. The other real thing about lethal injection is that despite the extraordinary links executioners sometimes go to make the whole deal look like a medical procedure, there's not really anything sciencey going on. I assume in your jobs, you are well-trained. You know the, the protocols of questioning and editing, and, but the people who carry out lethal injections are not well-trained. There's often little training. And they're tasked with a very complicated job. And, of course, no mainstream medical association or board condones any licensed professional's participation in an execution. But what about journalists? Can we justify participating in this type of execution when it's never really clear what's actually happening? Um, I'm curious about the, the ethics like, of witnessing an execution and participating in this process. Do you have any thoughts on that? I'm not a doctor. Even if I was, I'm not sure I would know what was going on exactly. And so... Then going to the public and saying, well, this is what appeared to happen, it sort of raises all kinds of sort of ethical questions for me about if you're possibly, what are you really adding? What are you helping or what are you telling the public about this, this process if you don't even know yourself what you just saw, you know? So I charge $250 an hour for my therapy services. So I'm, I'm going to respond, but then I'm going to send you a bill. It is a it's a really, I think it's a very complicated, hard question. Uh, so as long as there have been executions in the United States, there have been witnesses. And witnesses are allowed in every state that has um, executions and by the feds. To be a witness to an execution is like being a minimum security prisoner. So it's a highly regulated process. On the one hand, glad that uh glad is not the right word i'm on the one hand on the one hand believe that if we're going to have executions they should be witnessed but i think that witnesses often tell an artificial story which doesn't really get at the truth of what is being seen and in that sense when you come out and say uh, at you know nine twelve, the they started the flow of the first drug. At nine twenty two, the it was pronounced dead. You are conveying a false picture of what the experience of being executed is. Uh, I'd love it if you were there to to spend the night before with someone who's going to be executed. Mm-hmm. and experience what they experience. Um, I love it where, where if witnesses were there from the first moment the person is taken out of the holding cell. So, um, yes, uh, executions, if we're going to have them, should be witnessed. Indeed, I think executions by their very nature are public acts, right? The federal government is doing it on behalf of the people versus the United States. but the witness is in a compromised moral position namely you are you are part of the authorizing process when you witness an execution on the one hand and on the other hand imagining an execution without witnesses would deprive the public of what little right to know uh we are able to get from the reporting that 
you were able to do. And I'm curious, why would you witness an execution? Me? Yeah. Uh, because the last guy got PTSD and someone had to fill in for him. <laughs> no one else volunteered. <laughs> like, what? what is it that would lead someone to sign up to watch someone have their life extinguished? Now, again, I, that's, a, that's a journalistic ethics question, and I'm sure there are lots of good answers. But I think your question is a really important one. It's a very complicated uh, thing that you do when you go to an execution and allow yourself to be implicated in this process where you are tightly controlled as to what it is that you can see and, right. and hear. The Federal Prison Bureau allowed me to take Adam's place for the planned executions of two men in mid-September. Quote, Please be advised you have been selected as a media witness for the execution of William Emmett LaCroix on Tuesday. Further information will be provided at a later date regarding the time of the scheduled execution. That came by email a few days after I indicated my, quote, interest in watching the U.S. government kill a man on death row in Terre Haute. The process for expressing interest is not unlike buying concert tickets or something. You go to the prison website, click on the tab for scheduled executions. A drop-down menu shows which people are scheduled to die and when. Click the name, hit submit. And they're still wearing their prison uniform because they all wear tan uniforms. No one ever resists, though? If they did, you would never know. Because they're strapped down. You know, when that when that it happens, like that's why when you walk in that chamber, uh, be ready because when you wouldn't know it's only two people, three people from the spiritual advisor in there, and the four of the inmates. You don't know. You have yeah. no idea because they don't show you what they do beforehand. IV is already placed. In Terre Haute, Adam is trying to prepare me for LaCroix's execution. Uh, and then the, the guard lets you in, they escort you into right in there. So I'm guessing like they bring in the inmate to the back. Are the seats assigned in there too, or is it just? It's, it's very small. It's not socially distant. It's a small room. It smells of hand, I mean, and they give you a pen paper. Each seat has a pen paper. How much paper is there? Local. There is okay. So I'm gonna take a shitload of notes. I, I do not trust my short-term memory, especially not in a situation oh, like this. The first. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier that week, I got a hold of Lacroix's attorney, Jack Smith. He was still in Georgia. Uh, we've moved to, our client has requested that I uh, be present at his execution, and he's, um, uh, he has that right under the federal regulations, but also under Georgia law. And um, the, but I can, I'm his lead attorney, his longtime attorney, um, 74, and have certain health conditions that make it impossible for me right now to travel and going to a prison that's had numerous COVID cases. Um, and we've asked that the, that the court uh, delay the execution until uh, a, a vaccine is available. Uh, uh, and sometime <coughs> in first part of next year in order for me to be present as he wishes. There's no way I could go be there now. It'd be a serious risk to my health. <laughs> I am. Uh, I'll tell you the, the real details. I uh, was diagnosed with a form of leukemia about 10 years ago. It's manageable. Uh, interestingly enough, it was uh, because it was, they believe it was because I was exposed to Agent Orange when Agent Orange when I was in uh, Vietnam uh, in the late 60s, and uh, and. Uh, my doctor says that makes you particularly susceptible to, uh, uh, you know, pulmonary issues. And uh, so uh, there's no way I can attend it under present conditions, nor travel under present conditions. Um, but he has the right to have his lawyer there. 
uh, under the statutes. <laughs> he said the government's rush to execute was putting everyone at risk. Oh, yeah, that's the whole problem. Things, you know, they, they didn't set the execution until the 1st of August, so everything has to move really quick. You know, one of the reasons it's important, I always think, not only are you there to consult with him and to comfort him in his last hours, but you're there, you, you, as you'll see when you go to this execution, there's not going to be a friendly face there. And uh, uh, and it was good to have one friendly face there. I mean, what execution I went to, I just felt good about it. I guess it went away, but it felt like it gave him some strength. Uh, get through it. William LaCroix's lawyer wouldn't be there, but people were still looking out for him. Unless the war is just coming up here to talk to him for whatever reason. This is Christopher Vialba on death row for his role in the kidnapping and murder of a young couple visiting Texas. Hold on a second. I'm trying to see what they're they doing with Will right now. I don't know what they're doing. I'm trying to figure if they're about to move him or give him his last meal or what. Uh, yeah, right when I got back before they gave me the call, I was like, man, I know you got a legal call coming up, man. I'm just speaking because I always check on him. It's right next to me. I can see, like, the lieutenant standing outside my door. And there's, you know, a bunch of other CEOs because he can't open his door without all the, you got to, like, if you move him, they got to have at least three CEOs and a lieutenant. And we got to have leg shackles on and they cuff me behind my back. They cuff you up front, then they're going to put a belly chain on you so they can hook the cuffs to that so you can't lift your hands up. Nowadays, Vialva is a pastor of sorts for the Special Confinement Unit's Messianic community. He tried ministering to each person facing an execution date. I think they're putting a belly chain on. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just, I'm really, I'm really intrigued. Like, I'm trying to really find out what the hell they do out there in the hallway for a minute, so I think that whatever they're about to do, I think they're about to do it now. Okay, they're wanting them. Yeah, they're about to move him. I'm aware, though. Yeah. I think, like, they tell you, like, kind of the procedures and, like, what happened at the death house. Close to the execution date, Vialva was fretting over what LaCroix must be thinking, and if he was going to get anything he wanted for a last meal. Hey, hey, Will. Okay. Yo, what's up with your meal? All right. Oh, oh ain't that some bullshit? All right, man. I'm still on the phone, right? I just wanted to check on you, see what was going on, right? Oh, for real? Really? Oh, that's cold, man. Did they make you, like, make up a new thing, or did you already have some on standby? That is some cold bullshit, man. They playing games, Will. Hey, I'll holler at you, man. Okay, so he said exactly what I thought. They took him out there. The ward gave him a briefing about tomorrow and, like, you know, the procedures and shit like that. Um, But yesterday, I mean, not uh, yesterday, early this morning, they came to him about his last meal shit, right? He wanted Kentucky Fried Chicken. They said it's a security problem because of the bones in the chicken. So they said, well, you're going to have to do something else. So he, he opted and changed, changed his meal to some Pizza Hut shit. No, bone, no bones in the chicken. It's a cold leg, man. I can't believe that shit. That's some bullshit, man. That's, that's what they're doing here. See how I told you this shit is real clinical, man. It's like it ain't really no thing to them. The prison bureau wouldn't let us interview people on death row. Information about what was going on inside the prison came from people like Vialva, via their family members or attorneys they're allowed to contact. Hey, my name is Beth Hodios. I'm the public information officer for the Federal Bureau of Prisons. I'd like to welcome you to the Federal Correctional Complex here in Terrebonne, Indiana. On the day of the scheduled execution, I walked into a room with five others selected to serve as media witnesses for LaCroix's execution. To carry out the death sentence of inmate William Emmett LaCroix Jr. at the United States Penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana. A prison bureau official named Beth Patios addressed the witnesses. Mr. LaCroix was sentenced to death on March 10, 2004, after a jury found him guilty with the intent to cause death and serious 
bodily harm, where he took a motor vehicle that had been transported, shipped, and received in interstate commerce from the person and presence of Joanne Lee Tesler by force and violence resulting in her death to which he was sentenced to death. On July 31st, 2020, Mr. LaCroix was notified. The director of the Bureau of Prisons set the date, September 22nd, to carry out the sentence in post. Mr. LaCroix's execution is, is scheduled to occur today at approximately 6 p.m. She's warning the media witnesses not to talk to anyone other than the people they've authorized. USP Terre Haute staff have been advised only official BOP spokespersons are authorized to comment regarding institution matters and reporters should not question staff members on site. You can have only paper and a pen with you, which will be provided to you. We are going to begin processing here shortly, and um, if you would secure all of your items, we may be go over to the penitentiary to get screened, and we may have to come back over here if there's a delay. So just want to be prepared for that. The veteran media witnesses noticed the new guy. Yeah. Who are you at? Uh, the NPR station. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. What, your AP, maybe? Yeah, yeah, your colleague was saying that uh, this would be your first. Does anyone have to use the restroom before we go? Yes. Okay, you want to go through those doors? They take us in separate vans to a security screening and then to a little brick building where all federal executions are carried out. Armed guards stand outside. 6 p.m. comes and goes as last-minute legal challenges add three more hours to LaCroix's life. I'm sitting on a plastic chair, staring at the ground, when the death house comes alive. A curtain shoots up without warning. The other journalists, veteran execution watchers by now, are standing. For some reason, I always picture them sitting. In front of us, William LaCroix is tied to an oddly shaped gurney. It's like a stick figure with his arms hanging down instead of reaching up. He's heavy set with a white beard and looks basically nothing like the older photos we've seen. Straps on the wrists and arms hold him down, but he isn't struggling just waiting. His lower half is covered by a light sheet. There's what appears to be a wired heart rate monitor hooked to one of his left fingers. His right hand is bandaged. IV lines are connected at both elbows. The tubes and wires tangle and disappear through a hole in the wall behind him. Back there, I assume, are others waiting for a signal. LaCroix believed the young woman he murdered embodied the spirit of his babysitter Tinkerbell, who molested him 20 years earlier and that killing her would reverse a curse placed on him by a witch. None of this comes up tonight. Courts decided years ago that he's competent enough to be punished. To our left and LaCroix's right, a U.S. Marshal picks up a black phone connecting him to a room full of lawyers in Washington, D.C. They'll know if anything serious enough to stop the execution comes up, but nothing does. This is the last time we'll hear anything from inside. Someone on their end controls the microphone and speaker. From our perspective, it's silent beyond the glass. The only noises we hear come from ourselves. There's not much to see in the death chamber. I'm staring right at the IV lines attached to LaCroix's arms. They're clear. I realize that despite gaming this out repeatedly, I never got a mental image of what lethal injection actually looks like. I don't notice it, but a clear liquid is snaking its way out of the hidden room and through the tangle of tubes, toward LaCroix and toward us. All of a sudden, LaCroix closes his eyes. He starts breathing a little heavier, a little faster, a lot faster. Then his face contorts into a grimace. Outside the prison, I switched on my recorder as soon as I could. Um, so, that, so I, I mean, without any doubt, that thing that they told me about with the squeezing his stomach in from the, from the, the sides. The constant, oh, oh, the sides. Yeah, it was like his sides were like coming, it's like he was moving. like this. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously it's not clear because the sheet, you know, he was kind of uh, heavy set too. It was subtle, but something strange happened to LaCroix's torso shortly after the drugs started flowing. That rolling contraction, which experts believe could be a sign that the person being executed is attempting to breathe but can't due to an obstruction, such as from blood pooling into the lungs. Later, the prison bureau hands out copies of a statement from the victim's father, Tom. I'm unaware that he never showed any remorse for his evil actions, his life of crime, or for the horrific burden he caused Joanne's loved ones. I realize that some people are against the death penalty for various reasons. However, I believe that premeditated murder, especially when it involves torture, is justification for the death penalty. He added, quote, Today, justice was finally served. William LaCroix died a peaceful death, 
in stark contrast to the horror he imposed on my daughter Joanne. But did he enjoy a peaceful death? It took me a minute to come up with the right words after arguing with a Wire reporter about his choice. He wrote that LaCroix's midsection was, quote, heaving uncontrollably. For radio newscasts, I reported his torso, quote, jerked and contracted uncontrollably. We both agreed on the uncontrollably part. While typing out my story, I returned again and again to the notebook I used during the execution, my only record of LaCroix's death. And still, it's hard to say what I saw. According to the government's version, LaCroix drifted off into a peaceful sleep. If people like Joel Zivit are right, LaCroix might have been conscious the whole time, awake and aware as half a dozen people leered inside the room and scribbled notes while he gasped for air. Just standing there, not even pretending to help. We didn't know it at the time, but LaCroix's execution was the last time the federal government executed a white man. LaCroix was the sixth person to be executed by the Trump administration. The seventh person on the government's list? Christopher Vialva. Coming up on Rush to Kill, the DOJ starts executing black men, almost exclusively. Christopher is the first uh, black person, this group of defendants who have been selected for execution by Attorney General Barr. The racist origins of the modern death penalty. Our conception of youth and culpability. Black children are seen as older, um, more dangerous and more culpable. And it's used as a supposed solution to the embarrassment of anti-black lynchings. And why some experts are convinced the DOJ took race into consideration when selecting which prisoners to kill. I don't think they ran out of white people. I think they intentionally didn't execute black people till after the election. Rush to Kill is a production of WFIU News in Bloomington, Indiana. This episode was produced by Sarah Whitmire, Brock Hammond, and me, George Hale with help from Martha Abraham and Kaylee Muneer. Our newsroom researcher is Kathy Knapp, editing by Perry Metz. Wei Wong contributed reporting. Special thanks to the NPR Investigations Desk, including Graham Smith and Meg Anderson. Thanks also to the storytellers at NPR Content Development, Lauren Gonzalez, Adelina Lancianese, and Arjun Hutchins, and to Eva Tesfai and Vic Reichardt. More information is at wfiu.org slash rush to kill.